trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, (laughs) even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. Marcus, what was your necessary delusion when you were 11 years old? What was my necessary delusion when I was 11 years old? How old were we when we were 11? Was that like fifth grade or something? Yep. When I was a kid, I mean, frankly, I don't know if this is qualified, but I was like obsessed with being a secret agent. I don't know if that counts as a necessary delusion. I don't know if I had necessary delusions when I was 11 beyond like wanting to be an FBI agent. What was it about an FBI agent that intrigued you? I think the idea of like, um, you know, I don't know, like every narcissistic fantasy, like I think the idea of being like a protagonist in a story in which I was like the central character was like very intriguing to me when I was 11. I was and still am very obsessed with like the iconography of like handguns. Like I really wanted a a jacket that said CIA with like one of those shoulder holsters, you know? I really wanted a gun. I really wanted to get shot at. I really wanted to like jump off buildings like while things exploded behind me. I just, you know, I wanted like a life of like action and adventure. And I wanted to be of like central importance. How about that Earth Monster? You ever wanted to be of central importance? Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and I have been a shitty friend more times than I've been a good friend, it feels like. Man, I hope that's a delusion, but this is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. If you've been listening for a while, then you know that Marcus is not a new friend. He's actually been our necessary delusional shrink on the podcast, contributing on quite a few episodes in season one. He has also been my best friend since we were 18. He's a psychoanalyst in New York City, so all sorts of reasons that make him of central importance here on this show. Marcus always makes me feel like I'm smarter somehow. He is thoughtful, intuitive, well-read, articulate. He's got a great vocabulary. But the reason that Marcus and I are really friends is his willingness to have this conversation. And what occurs to me as I record with him is how good he really is at ripping right to the root of getting down to the core of why we're actually talking about something. I thought his delusion was pretty concise in the opening. He wanted to live a life of action and adventure. He wanted to be the protagonist in a story, which would mean that he was of central importance. And for 11-year-old Marcus growing up in Cleveland, that meant he wanted to be a secret agent. 
I had a briefcase filled with spy tools for my birthday when I was like nine or 10. My dad made me uh, business cards that said that I was a private eye. I don't care what age you are. Business cards are a very effective delusional reinforcer. Anytime your identity is feeling squishy or confusing or your story is lacking direction, just look down at your business card, Earth Monster, and printed right there in a few short lines should be a pretty solid title for you to identify with. Delusion! In Marx's case, secret agent. But like a lot of us, he had sort of a hard time accepting this answer at first, or rather seeing its relevance, because it sounds silly. Marcus, the secret agent. Can children have necessary delusions? Necessary delusions to me feel like the adult manifestation of some like very childlike aspect of yourself. To have a necessary delusion at 11 would be sort of like heartbreaking in a way because it's like the necessary delusion is like a compromise between like reality and like adulthood and like childlike impulses. I feel like when you're a kid, it's just delusion. It's just like, maybe I'll be the president when I grow up. Like there is no sort of like real self yet that like needs to compromise in that way. But the delusions are necessary when we're kids because we're all looking for our place in the picture. Like I said, Marcus always makes me feel smarter and maybe that's because he challenges me. He pushes me to get specific. That's the reason that I'm asking about 11 years old mm. is because you still kind of have one foot planted in the childhood imagination. Right. 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 And you're also like just kind of tiptoeing into your teenage years where it's like you're having the very beginnings of the realization of like, oh, I will be an adult one day. What do I want for myself? Mm. So as far as I can tell, we take the most powerful idea that we've come up with as a child and we commit our development to it. But don't get confused. Necessary delusions come big and small. We use little ones every day for daily self-preservation and upkeep, like me coming out of this pandemic. I'm not 25 pounds overweight forever. <laughs> My diet starts tomorrow. Delusion! And we use the big ones to drive us unconsciously over the course of decades. Like Marcus's idea that he would become a secret agent. It started out imaginary enough. I feel like I was like a real babe in the woods when I was like 11 still, probably. I was like a pretty naive kid. I mean, I was very into like escapism when I was a kid. I was real dreamy. My head was not in reality at all. Like, I think I had very weird, confusing friendships with people that were sort of um, not actualized or sort of like well-adjusted. When I was 11, I was like friends with like some of the misfitty kids, like in my fifth grade class. I think that I matured very late. I feel like uh, I hit puberty kind of late. Despite a few misfit friends surrounding him, Marcus felt solitary as a kid. Maybe it came from being the only boy in a family of sisters. Maybe it was just his temperament. Or maybe it was a very universal feeling that a lot of us have as we begin to discover the unexpected emotional, chemical, physical madness of what it means to be an earth monster. In a world that has existed long before us, he was searching for touchstones, those identifiers that would show him his place, reveal the path that he was meant to take, delusion. And the idea of being a secret agent sort of celebrated this lonesome feeling and this aspiration that he had for himself. Right, secret agents are also, it's very lonesome. You're sort of like solitary. You're not really like a part of something. You're sort of like, you operate kind of independently of things. So as he was identifying with these feelings of being a blossoming loner, he was also finding models to follow for his fantasy. I loved Get Smart when I was 11 years old. I loved Don Adams and I loved the show Get Smart. Get Smart, 
the 1960s TV show about the completely inept secret agent Maxwell Smart, played by Don Adams. Marcus also loved the old TV show Mission Impossible. And then the Tom Cruise version of Mission Impossible. But my dad actually was very into Mission Impossible in the 70s, I think, like the original show. So my dad knew a bit about that. I don't think my dad was like a huge fan, but my dad was like fluent in it, like knew all the characters' names and like definitely watched the show. So he would talk to me about it. I think we did like wind up, we had it like we got VHS tapes of it or something like that at one point. Marcus would watch Get Smart with his dad. He would soak in the missions and the clothes and the gadgets and the language, the fast-talking suits. They would watch Mission Impossible, and he would imagine his own life full of action and adventure. I think there's sort of a fantasy that, like, maybe your parents aren't, in fact, very boring. Maybe they're actually boring. It's just a cover for the fact that, like, they're, like, very secretly interesting people. Maybe that's what was driving him towards a life of excitement. He thought his parents were boring. Like, I remember snooping through my dad's things and, like, there's always a fancy you're going to find something fucking insane. And it's like, oh, my God, like, my dad, you know. And it's just going to be, like, it's going to reveal some, like, gigantic thing about your parents. But no such revelation came. There's always a fantasy you're going to find out your parents are actually, like, really cool or something. That feels like part of the secret agent thing. And a pretty universal delusion that we are more interesting than we seem. The more models he gathered, the more he learned to emulate the secret agents, the more he believed he was more interesting than he appeared to be. I was really into private eye shit, too. I used to buy these, like, Pulp Fiction. Like, you could buy those, like, novels about, like, um, 1950s, like, detective novels and stuff. I was, like, very into all of that. In middle school, Marcus began reading a book series called The Three Investigators, which I assume must have come from his dad as well. The series was published during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Marcus was reading them around 1991. Well, I think part of it is sort of sadly or sort of tellingly, I think the idea of having like best friends who you do it with was like, like I didn't have the kind of, as I stated earlier, my best friend when I was 11 years old was like a kid with Tourette's who was very troubled. So I didn't really have like, like cool, sophisticated detective friends when I was 11, you know? So I think the whole premise is like, you have like a cool crew of people who are also just as interested in this thing as you are. The reality is that like, you know, that that was not the case for me. Um, their hideout was like a really cool thing where you, it like looked like a junkyard, but then when you like crawled through an old school bus, it like went down, I think, and it's a like subterranean, like a sort of bat cave situation where it's like a secret hideout basically, which is obviously very compelling to me. In the clubhouse, they had a small lab, a dark room, and multiple secret exits. They had a periscope to spy on the surrounding area and an office with an old typewriter. The three investigators were kids that solved mysteries. The slogan on their business card was, we investigate anything. Perfect. That sounds like they created a broad landscape for Marcus to act out his delusion. All of this will become relevant shortly. And while he read the stories, all of this became an aspiration. The clubhouse, the mission to uncover truth, the friendship, became a part of the fabric that Marcus imagined for his own life. Marcus, how do you think the secret agent delusion manifested itself throughout high school, your 20s? Are there any like call out moments? Oh my God. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think the byproduct of this conversation to me has been that this is probably like the umbrella in which I can view almost my entire life. I mean, I think wanting to be a writer, which was like the next sort of adult manifestation of being a secret agent, is absolutely like being in like an office and typing on a typewriter and wearing a fedora and like smoking a cigarette. I think it was more about um, 
like noir shit in general. Like I think it's it's not being a secret agent in the sort of like James Bond sense of the word. It, it's a little bit more like Hitchcock, like 1950s kind of, I think was always like my flavor. By his early 20s, it was apparent that Marcus was not going to be the kind of secret agent or detective that was getting shot at or living a life of action and adventure, at least not in the literal sense. And so the delusion adapted. It didn't go away. It just latched onto whatever parts of Marcus were digging for truth. It looked for opportunities to express itself. The fictional detective is like a storytelling conceit. So it's like you're not even really a detective. You're there to like tell everybody what's like happening in the story. In college, he became a writer, still digging for truth, but more usually emotional truth. And whether he realized it or not, he expressed his secret agent delusion in most things that he did. A secret agent observes people, Mm -hmm. digs for the truth, lives kind of on the outskirts of like, they're not like a part of the system. They sort of like work outside of the system, Yeah. right? Secret agents date beautiful women and mm-hmm. models and celebrities, right? Secret agents have custom cut secret clubhouses mm-hmm. built in Suit. crash. Suit. Suits. Let's keep this list in mind. Secret agents observe people. They dig for truth, work outside of the system. They date models and celebrities. They live in custom cut secret clubhouses and they wear suits. I first started buying suits at a thrift store in Cleveland, and I would get them tailored by this old Russian tailor who was, lived in my neighborhood. They were like literally like ten ninety nine, and I would buy them. They were like polyester, like suits from the 70s, and I would get them tailored. Like most people in their early 20s, there was this underlying need to tell everybody exactly who he thought he was. And the best way to begin doing that was through his clothes. Right around the time we went away to college and I realized every cool person dressed exactly the same, I became very invested in like standing out and being like even weirder. It was a little bit like of an egocentric kind of like one-upsmanship. I went to a college where every single person wore skinny jeans and a blazer with like a hoodie under it or whatever. That was like the way we all dressed back then. Quite literally the uniform that I wore every day. Yeah, and that's how that was everybody. That's how we all dressed. That's how cool people look. So I wanted to do something really weird. So I would wear like three-piece suits, you know, but I had no money. So they were like from, they were made out of flammable polyester and they were from a thrift store. He wore three-piece suits every day. He was never going anywhere fancy. He was just going to class or a bar or a friend's living room to drink beers, but it didn't matter. He decided suits every day. It was just who he was. That was cool, and it did make me stand out, for better or for worse. And also, I felt like a cool detective, so it was, like, good for that. There it is. I was genuinely very interested in, like, male, like, 1920s through 1970s, like, kind of male fashion aesthetic. Because those were the clothes that he had seen since he was a little kid watching Get Smart and James Bond and the Mission Impossible TV show with his dad. Smoking cigarettes, wearing suits, wearing a hat, living in an alleyway in New York City, which you and I did together. I would say my entire adult life has been like a manifestation of like wanting to be a hard-boiled like detective, basically. Dating beautiful women who were terrible, probably for a period of time. I don't think I'm speaking out of school, but for several years in our early 20s, Marcus would date these tall, beautiful, model-esque women that at least looked to be out of his league. Out of my league, too. It was like, where do you find these girls? How do you get them to be with you? I didn't know how to do it. But we were young, and in his own neurotic way, Marcus had swagger. He still does. Maybe the girls liked how they looked next to the guy who wore only three-piece suits. 
drinking bourbon and like wearing a vest. I don't know, like every single thing I did when I was in my 20s was probably like preoccupied by like some, always like tethered in some way to the fantasy of being like a cool detective. Marcus went to a small liberal arts college on the outskirts of New York City. A lot of dirty hipsters and blossoming artists, and you get the vibe. But there was also this girl who went there, this girl who was famous. She had actually starred in a Nickelodeon show when we were kids. And like many celebrities that go to college trying to find some normal semblance of life on campus, everybody talked about her. Like, kind of all of the time. (laughs) Anyway, this is all to say that she was beautiful and popular and probably could have gone out with any guy that she wanted. And despite his fondness for instant mashed potatoes and shocking lack of upper body strength, Marcus dated her. Maybe there was something about him that made her feel like he was a good guy digging for truth in a dangerous world full of lies. That led to my junior year of college when you and I lived in Queens. I worked at Bloomingdale. And then I had this like crazy like 60, 70% discount of Bloomingdale so that I could finally buy like expensive suits. He got a part-time job at Bloomingdale's in the city during college and immediately began buying expensive suits with his discount. I was a personal shopper. Your personal shopper. Didn't you yeah. work in the suit section or you wanted to work in the suit I just suit hung section? out in the suit section, but I was technically a personal shopper. Believe me, this all ties in. And the lines at Bloomingdale's were super hazy. Marcus was technically on the payroll as a personal shopper, but he really used the place as a platform to act out his delusions of being a secret agent. Well, the store was a bit of a free-for-all. This sort of is like the beginning of like kind of a George Costanza era of my life. To this day, it's like a great mystery to me. I basically would just show up to work whenever I wanted. I did not pay attention to my schedule at all. I can confirm this was completely true. (laughs) We would be smoking cigarettes at 2 a.m. in the basement. Oh, right. Did I mention that we moved into our very own secret clubhouse off the 7 train in Queens? It was like a sub-street level basement where you had to walk down like a rickety like flight of metal stairs. And then there was like a door into like a weird, terrifying hallway that was like made out of cinder blocks with like, I think a single light bulb just dangling from this. Like it was as like cinematic a hideout as possible. Our, our, our apartment was like in the bowels of like the basement of this building. It, it was not like a street legal apartment for sure. Our windows had bars on them. Um, we like We like didn't get mail. It was definitely not like a legit place to live. It was awesome, though. This apartment should probably get its own episode because it truly was a nest for so many of our delusions in our 20s. An unfinished basement filled with garbage that I insisted was art. I don't remember a lot about my bedroom. I mean, it was a giant room with a super high ceiling and a radiator on the ceiling that was painted silver. Uh, Our floors were linoleum. Everything was just like white and gigantic and sort of like gloomy. We had no natural light because we were in like a sub-basement. I don't think of my room as like that exceptional. There was like a bookshelf, there was a bed, there was a desk. If I can jog your memory a little bit, you had um, black, white, and red color theme going Mm -hmm. with uh, mostly Ikea furniture, very minimalist (laughs) aesthetic. Yeah, sounds right. Marx's room was minimal, with French New Wave art on the walls, and of course, a typewriter. Yes, I definitely had a typewriter. I always had a typewriter. There were ashtrays full of cigarette butts. <laughs> oh, I see. We're going in that. I, I thought you meant like literally my room. Right. I had like a bottle of whiskey with like an old timey tumbler with like tongs and an ice bucket and like, you know, ashtrays. And a haze that seemed to hang permanently in the air as if Marcus was trying to find his way through it on his trips to and from the bathroom to take bubble baths by candlelight. (laughs) Marcus vibes. 
yeah, I'm just trying to be like a cool private writer who types stories on a typewriter. He would stay up all night talking about his 10 a.m. start time the next morning at Bloomingdale's, but when the morning arrived, he would just sleep. <laughs> he would sometimes roll into the city around 2.30. Total mystery to me. I was like, maybe he got fired and didn't want to say it? Nope. He had just found a job where he could do whatever he wanted. Perfect. Marcus doesn't like authority. I would just go to Bloomingdale's when I felt like going to Bloomingdale's. I would walk around the store and I would help people. And you get a commission when you sell and you punch in a little code that like says it's you like ringing it out and you get the commission. And nobody commented on this for like a year. I had no idea who my manager was. I would show up to the store whenever I wanted and I would hang out all the time. I loved being there. But I would just walk into the store. I realized when I would just show up four hours late to my shifts, no one would say a word to me. So nobody had any idea whether I was coming or going. Let's touch on two secret agent aspects to the Bloomingdale's job, right? Okay. One being, you talked so much about hanging out in the suit section. You mm-hmm. used to come home and tell me about the sales people. I wonder yeah, if you can remember anything. I remember there. everything about both of them. Yeah. It was a very, very, very short guy who had sort of like a Matrix aesthetic. I want to say his name was Danny. He basically dressed like Neo in the Matrix because it was like, you know, keep in mind, it was like 2003 or whatever. And he would like wear like a black leather suit with like those sunglasses and like the whole thing. He was like a weird fucking creep. He actually later got fired for getting in a fist fight with another associate in the store. Which I'm sure Marcus was all eyes for. A little action for his story. Um, And then there was a super tall guy who had like a very ambiguous kind of sexuality. He was very nice and gentle and had like very beautiful fingernails. He was the manager of the suit section, I think. And he let me hang out there and I would just talk to people about suits and try on suits and sell people suits. And that's like all I did. Even though this was not the job he had been hired for. And uh, the other call out from Bloomingdale's is you got like weirdly fixated on Bloomingdale's security. Yes, I remember. Can you talk to me about that? That's also very sort of secret agency. Well, when you first work at Bloomingdale's, when you do the orientation, they're very invested in telling you that you should not steal from Bloomingdale's. And part of the way they teach you not to steal from Bloomingdale's, because obviously, as I just pointed out, people are doing whatever the fuck they want. And it's like a real shit show there. Is they, they tell you they have like state of the art security and they give you a tour of the security room. And one of the things I remember really vividly that really captured me, obviously, back then as well, is they have these very powerful cameras that can zoom all the way from Bloomingdale, like all the way to Central Park. So basically like down a giant avenue. And that's like if you if you jump in a car and like drive away, they can like see where your car is going for like miles and miles. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that's what they told us. And it really had an effect on me. And I really wanted to work as like the the sort of retail term for people who like work security and retail stores and loss prevention. And they're called LPs. And they were like store detectives. They like walk around. And I think they're actually called store detectives at Bloomingdale. And they walk around the store and they try to like catch people shoplifting. And they like, you know, there's a jail cell at Bloomingdale's where they hold people if you could cause feeling. So as I said, I was uh, being a Bloomingdale's detective was like very compelling to me. And I always try to talk to the loss prevention guys about how I wanted to work in loss prevention. And they would always look at me the exact same way, like the NYPD detective that I met, who I told I wanted to be in the NYPD looked at me, which was like the way you look at someone who's like sort of like a blithering child who you're just like, yes, maybe one day you'll like, just like with no confidence that I could do that thing. I was actually turned down to be a store detective on multiple occasions. I think they did want some sort of like law enforcement training or it was for like retired cops or I definitely like, like a 20 year old kid who himself was basically scamming Bloomingdale's was 
was not the that was not the archetype of loss prevention associate that they wanted, obviously, sadly for me. But he always thought that he would be great at it. Marcus would watch people and write little notes about them in his moleskin like he was Harriet the Spy. If not a loss prevention store detective, then maybe a writer. The point is they were all platforms that he was unconsciously finding for himself to act out aspects of his delusion. Even when I was a ghostwriter for a Christian book publishing house, that also felt like a weird sort of like secret double life kind of thing that was a little bit writerly, but was also like you kind of had to have like a, a fake persona. Marcus, a Jewish guy working as a ghostwriter at a Christian publishing house. <laughs> it wasn't the most exciting work, but it paid the bills for a couple years and allowed him to play out a Clark Kent double life fantasy regularly in the office. Personally, I don't believe that any of these things are accidents. I think that the specifics of our circumstances often allow us to unconsciously get cozy in our delusions, while we consciously believe that we are playing out completely different storylines. Like, it's a stepping stone as I build my career. I then, like, dated and got very involved with a woman who worked at the Christian Book Publishing House, as you'll recall, and we had to keep that a secret from the Christian Book Publishing House. So that was like a weird double life thing where we would like sneak in to work together, but like go into the different elevators. So no one knew we'd like arrive together and we would like pass each other in the hallway and like wink at each other. I, I feel like a lot of my adult life involved like various aspects of like secret agenting of some kind, espionage. It makes sense to me. Being a ghostwriter at a Christian book publishing house was too cushy to walk away from, but he also low-key hated it from his very first day. And he worked there for years. So, sure, maybe he met a girl at work that he really liked and got mistakenly involved in a relationship that needed to be kept a secret. But wasn't it also convenient that this allowed him to play a secret agent, undercover, on his way to the water cooler? As I hash through Marcus's story here, it reminds me not to take all of our delusions so literally. His story is helping me to explore the nuance, to remember that our necessary delusions are the ideas that guide us, but they are not always our goals necessarily. They are the internal stories that we use to shape our paths, mold our behavior. But we are very adaptable, and more often than not, a lot of us probably stumble across circumstances that will host our delusions. We get comfortable in those positions, and we forget a lot of the nuanced reasons that led us there in the first place. I mean, look at your office in the village now. If that is not your secret hideout, right? I don't know what is. I mean, I totally see the secret agent delusion all over your path. Yeah. No, I no, it's definitely I think a thread, yeah. Fulfilled it. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. Well, right, I sort of found this like uh, very somewhat like nonviolent middle-class version of being a super agent is being a therapist. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you know Marcus is a psychoanalyst in New York City. He lives in the suburbs with his wife and kids and commutes into Manhattan every day to see patients. So the Clark Kent version of you mm. is the mild-mannered family man who moved into the 0.25 children house in Scarsdale. Right. 2.5 Earth Monster, not 0.25. But then you've got your secret agent life down in the West Village. Yes. No, I think that is, I think that is very real. That's always why I really liked, um, you know, I wrote like my uh, like sort of like graduate dissertation on Renee Magritte. His whole thing was that like he was like he like purported to be this very normal man and he wore suits every day and he like drank tea and was very like respectable. But inside he was sort of like insane. I think to me, um, and I've thought about this many times before, like I think 
various, I've certainly talked about it in my own analysis. Like I think very central to being a psychoanalyst to me is like appearing to be like a very normal middle-class person on the outside. And then actually on the inside, you're, you're crazy. You're like sort of in disguise. That's like disguise is very central to being a secret agent. My wife is definitely like a real cover. She's like a pretty weird person too, but I feel like she's much more comfortable being like a normal person out in the world in a way that I'm not. So she provides a lot of cover for me. And my boys, like, you know, the jury's out. I was sort of hoping I'd have normal children, but I can already tell they're both so fucking weird. So we'll see like, <laughs> we'll see what happens. As a therapist, Marcus is able to work on his own in private practice. Much like a detective, it is his job to ask probing questions, to dig underneath, to reveal truths that have long been buried. He wears suits every day, even though no one asks him to do that. <laughs> it's just the way he's come to know himself. Still some version of that kid that dreamed of wearing a CIA jacket and a shoulder holster. I think it's a chicken or egg. That, like, I mean, I think my interest, my, the signifier of being a secret agent appealed to me as like an 11 year old because I was already that person. I mean, I was already becoming that person. Secret agent was sort of like the thing at hand. And I think it is probably true that like being a therapist is a kind of like adult manifestation of that like latent fantasy that it's like it's a version of what i want that like kind of allows me some of these things i think that's real yeah i think that that's thought-provoking but it's not just the therapist it's also your your personal philosophy and your mm -hmm. attitude right you know it's to me the the kind of like working on the outskirts of the machine or whatever mm -hmm. that's your sort of like attitude towards life i feel like you don't like you don't really allow yourself to get put into a lot of structured programs i feel yeah. like you sort of like you sort of work your way around things you mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah that's a very generous way of putting that i do not like structure or authority yeah for sure i'm not a therapist who like went a traditional route and works at a hospital or something like i'm you know i have my own thing it's like very private it's very like singular it's like it's really very about like my own taste. It, it is like the sort of uh, secret agent version of being a therapist. Yeah. During the day, he lives a life of danger, posted up on the ground floor studio apartment that he uses as an office in the West Village of Manhattan. He gets paid to facilitate important conversations that real people need to have with themselves. He has a special set of skills that he uses to help people see the truth about themselves. He doesn't describe himself this way. That is my interpretation of what he does. But it's not difficult to see that his 11-year-old necessary delusion is thriving all of these 27 years later. At night, he retires to his house in the suburbs, where he moonlights as a mild-mannered husband and father. I like go to like a party or something, and people ask me what I do, and I tell them what I do. Like We all know that I like sit around in a room with people and just talk about the most like disgusting, weirdest shit. Disgusting, weirdest shit. Code for real life. The kind of stuff that most people at parties are not trying to talk about. I think, again, like a lot of polite conversations predicate around everybody in the conversation getting to paint themselves in the best possible way. And all of us being like, we're all good, normal people. Delusion! That's like the point of this conversation is to establish like, I'm doing well, you're doing well, our wives are beautiful, like we're all doing great. Whereas I want to just be like, what's like the weirdest fucking thing you've like ever thought or done? That's like, I'm trying to get to almost like the spiritual opposite of that position. And so, you know, I mean, I'm not a monster. Like I don't, I, I, don't, I definitely do not like go out of my way to like freak people out at parties or um, that sounds sort of like adolescent. But I think telling people you're a therapist, it really weirds people out exclusively. 
I very rarely had people find out that I'm a therapist, like in mixed company and have like a normal reaction. Most people get like really bugged out by it and say something like kind of rude or inappropriate or, or sort of uh, from a position of being like kind of frightened. Because we're afraid of being seen or because we have preconceived ideas about therapy or people who become therapists. Because we so rarely lead with trust that maybe this therapist we're meeting is thoughtful and intuitive and compassionate. Instead of assuming that they have superpowers to feel empathy and uncover truth, we assume the worst and try to paint them down as creeps. Particularly amongst like men, it's like very common for people to either try to sort of diminish it in some way or they get very visibly nervous and people often ask like, are you doing something to me right now? And by doing something, do you mean making an authentic connection? Yes. Yes, he is. There's no version of me where I'm at a party just being like, oh, that guy works in insurance. Like, I should introduce myself to him so we can, like, network about, like, I'm such a weird fucking person. I think in polite society, there's a real sense that it's dangerous to get too close to people and that part of how people have well-adjusted relationships is by having, like, very sensible boundaries around, like, how you talk to other people. Uh, in polite society, it's not appropriate to be like, let's all go around and talk about our necessary delusions from when we were 11. You know, you're just supposed to be like, oh, like we're renovating our house. I think we're going to do like, you know, green tile in the bathroom. That's like what you're supposed to talk about. And this really is the big reason that Marcus and I are friends, because we both want to be having that conversation. There's never a time when I need to warm him up or brace him that I'm about to get deep. Those questions and that conversation are truly the baseline of our friendship. It is the conversation that each of us are most comfortable having. And I'll speak for myself. Most of the rest of the time, I'm just sort of faking it. And telling people you're a therapist often opens the door to people being like, well, you know, people have told me I should be in therapy because when I was five years old, like my dad jumped out the window. Like people say shit like that to me. Like a someone I just fucking met, like will say something like that to me. And, then I spend the party like talking to that person. You know, that's like what I do at parties. <laughs> right. Much to my wife's dismay. Talking about renovations and green floors and networking with insurance agents, that whole polite society is just boring. But Marcus's aspiration to be one of the interesting people, to be a protagonist of central importance, to seek out truth and adventure and a real connection with the other interesting people at the party has been the driving mission in his life. And maybe that mission began when the most important thing in the world to him was making a connection with his dad. Your dad introduced you to Mission Impossible. Was Mission Impossible or Secret Agent something that your dad admired? Right. And therefore, was that somehow built into the kind of uh, yeah, no, that's a good know, question. beginning of that delusion? Yeah, that was a problem. Because my dad, we didn't have sports and we didn't have video games, obviously, or, you know, getting the second base with girls in a fictional way. So th this was like the thing we had to like talk about, obviously. Yeah. No, I think I think you are 100% right. There wasn't a lot that I could talk to my dad about as a little boy. He said there was not a lot he could talk to his dad about as a little boy. There was definitely common ground there, for sure. I'm digging too much here, but I... No, no, I, I think you're... I think that is 100% true. Like, I think I think my dad just knowing about these shows was like, that was more than what we generally had. On some level, I suspect, right, the, 
the most overlap we had in our lives at that moment was probably like Get Smart and Mission Impossible and a couple other shows from the 70s that were about like detectives and stuff. His dad was a businessman, not humorless, but maybe difficult to connect with. That's how Marcus felt. So when he introduced Marcus to the old Mission Impossible TV show, from Marcus's perspective, suddenly, finally, there was a piece of his dad's world that he could really latch onto. If his dad admired secret agents, maybe one day Marcus could be a secret agent, and then his dad would admire... Delusion! In reality, Marcus was a dreamy kid, struggling to feel connected to people from the sidelines of his own delusion. And secret agents were fun and cool, and they lived lives of action and adventure. They were the protagonists of central importance. But maybe the thing that really soldered the idea to Marcus's heart was that they were the strongest point of connection that he had with his dad. I'm not the first person to say this, but I think there's a kind of like trajectory of like secret agent, detective. I think the therapist is in some ways like a very particular kind of detective where you're like yep. kind of trying to solve crimes, but in this like very obviously kind of like emotional or sort of intrapsychic way. Pay attention to your life, Earth Monster. Dreams really do come true. I got a phone call maybe four years ago from uh, recruitment for the CIA. The CIA actually called. They found me and they were like, we're doing a big recruitment for what they call like psychological analysts for the CIA in New York. They left me a voicemail. There was like a, you know, an open information session that you could like go to. So I went to the CIA building in the financial district and I met such weird people who were like psychologists and social workers. And there was this whole pitch. It was awesome, obviously. But at the end of the day, I found out that level one psychological analysts who work for the CIA go to Quantico, Virginia for 16 weeks to do basic training. And I found out that to work for the CIA, like you basically have to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they will call you at two o'clock in the morning. And you have to get up and drive to work because, like, something's happening. In a moment of clarity, Marcus saw himself, a grown man wearing a suit, sitting in a conference room at the Central Intelligence Agency in New York. I had this kind of, like, weird epiphany or this sort of resolution moment where it was like, I don't think I want to work for the CIA. Like, I think I want to, like, make double that amount of money. I think I want to, like, sleep in bed at night with, like, my wife and kids. And I don't want to, like, get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to, like drive to a black site to like review footage of a thing to like it all sounds awesome as i say that out loud i'm like very aware that it's very cool but it's just a sort of a resolution or a kind of um sort of acknowledgement that like maybe i want my life to be like you know i don't want to be running from gunfire in like kandahar or whatever i just want to like sleep in bed with my family so it was like an interesting kind of denouement to be like the cia literally called me and i got to walk into that building and like walk through a metal detector and talk to CIA agents about working at the CIA. I also found out that like they do a total like background check on you and like if you've ever smoked weed ever in your life, you like can't be in the CIA and like all this shit that was like, I definitely, I definitely can't be in the CIA. But um, also I'm almost 40, but it gave me some kind of peace of mind to be like, I actually don't think I want to work for the CIA. Um, it felt like a, it felt like a chapter like closing or something. Um, that's an awesome way to, to end. Also, I would just make the call out that, you know, as your delusion progressed, you kind of learned that your fantasy wasn't the Mission Impossible work for the CIA version. It was the Hitchcock private eye 
version of fantasy. You don't work well in an organization like that. You're a lone right. wolf. Right. You, uh, you're you're good with your secret, private kind of like ragtag. Yeah, yeah uh, that's a good that's a good point. That is a good call out. Yeah, not a team player. But one of the best one-on-one conversationalists around. A big thanks to Marcus for sharing his story today and for all of the conversation that he has kept me engaged and challenged and growing with. I love you, buddy. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show and you want to send it to us, you can do it on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. Also, shout out to all the Earth Monsters who have been calling the voicemail. Hey, Matt, it's Peter Brown. It is Monday, April 4th, and I'm walking the streets of downtown Chicago. But I'm reflecting a lot here on what it was like almost 20 years ago (laughs) when I was 18 and I moved here and, like, what I thought my life would look like. You know, like, I'm going to film school and I'm going to be famous or whatever. And kind of coming back now, 20 years later, and, you know, reflecting on who I was then, who I am now, what's changed, what will never change. But uh, later today, I'm going to be walking over in uh, an area where I used to live, walking by the bar where I in the height of a manic episode was convinced I was meeting Tom Ford. Also maybe hitting up the John Hancock Tower. So interesting to come back as a sane, well-balanced person and reflect on how being in the same space, uh, in a totally different state of mind, is kind of uh, kind of cool. All right, I'll talk to you later. We will be back next week with more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time. In reminiscing with Marcus about our early 20s and all the delusions that we lived out together in that basement in Queens, it only seems right to share this passage from Jack Kerouac's On the Road, because it meant so much to us at the time. It goes, The only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, 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 like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. That was definitely a part of my necessary delusion for a number of years, and probably a reason that I find myself gravitating towards the big, bold, wild, out-of-control personalities in the room. (laughs) Because I don't want to be around boring people. As I get older, I find that the boring people aren't boring. A lot of times they just take a little bit more patience to get to know. And I've learned that what really gets me excited about people and talking to people is the wide variety of personalities. All right, that's it.